welcome patrons and thank you for joining us at this special event. This is 10 Things, a series devoted to presenting 10 more things about all those great Saturday morning shows of the 1980s. If you're joining us, it means you wanted more than the Saturday morning podcast had to offer. Think of this as the after show where we can make a good thing last just a little longer. So grab a can of new Coke and a handful of fruit wrinkles and come back with me to the 80s. Rewind again. A pup named Scooby-Doo ran for four seasons and 27 episodes. But you knew that. In fact, there's a lot you already know if you listen to this Saturday morning podcast. While we explored a pup named Scooby-Doo, there is still plenty to look back on. Here are 10 things you might not know about a pup named Scooby-Doo. Number 10. When there's a crime in Coolsville, the obvious go-to is red herring. Yes, the tattooed grade school kid with the bright red hair is often who Freddie Jones suspects of the crime. But red is usually innocent, except for that one time. But more on that later. The character is named Red Herring because it's a tip of the hat to mystery novels. In literature and movies, a red herring is a fact or person or whatever that's introduced to the story. It's meant to make the audience think it's important and will fit into the story and resolution at a later time. Except that it becomes obvious that this red herring was meant to throw you off the tracks of the real information. In real life, a red herring is a fish that, once smoked, turns red and stinks to high heaven. I guess once smoked, it becomes obvious that it's there. In the early 1800s, English journalist William Cobbett wrote a story about how, as a child, he used a red herring to misdirect hounds chasing after a hare. Another version of the same story was published by Cobbett in 1833, and the term has been a part of our lexicon ever since. Number 9. When Tom Ruger was developing a pub named Scooby-Doo, he had a pretty clear vision of what he wanted the characters to be. After all, at that point, he had nearly 20 years of Scooby stories to draw from, some of which he had written as story editor on multiple Scooby shows. Scooby and Shaggy essentially stayed the same. They were best friends who loved to pal around and eat large quantities of food. Freddie Jones became the kid with all the conspiracy theories and believed that red herring was more than a red herring. Daphne became a prissy, girly girl and nearly fainted when something was dirty. Because she came for money, she acted like a princess. And Velma? Well, she would have been radically different if Tom Ruger had stuck to his guns on what he wanted to do. Originally, Velma would only utter one word in every episode. Jinkies. Yes, the one phrase that has defined the character since 1969 would have been her only word of dialogue. I wonder if Christina Lang would have recorded all her jinkies in one day, only to find them being used for the entire run of the show. According to Ruger, the show's story editors kept giving Velma more and more dialogue. Ruger fought it at first, but relented when he realized it was a losing battle. However... I believe the first word uttered by Velma in most episodes is Jinkies. 
When she says it, it gets the gang's attention and is a signal a clue has been found. In recent years, series creator Ruger says his one regret about the show was not fighting harder for Velma to only use the one word. Would it have made the show better? Write in and let me know your thoughts. Number 8. In the early 1970s, Shaggy actor Casey Kasem became a dedicated vegan. He asked the producers at Hanna-Barbera to make Shaggy a vegan as well. Unfortunately, Shaggy was known for his off-the-wall sandwiches and would continue to eat meat. When the different incarnations of Scooby-Doo continued on through the decades, Kasem was right there to support his character. But then, in 1995, Kasem was asked to voice Shaggy in a Burger King commercial. Kasem refused and walked away from the character he had voiced for 26 years. In 2002, when Hanna-Barbera was interested in restarting Scooby-Doo on television, they asked Kasem back into the fold. But Kasem had a request for the animation studio, Make Shaggy Vegan. After more than 30 years, Hanna-Barbera relented and gave Kasem his wish. Shaggy Rogers was vegan in What's New Scooby-Doo and would continue to be so even after Kasem was no longer voicing the character. Number 7 In the first episode of A Pup Named Scooby-Doo, Shaggy is upset when his bike is stolen. Then again, it's not just any bike. It's a Cherry 1959 Starfire Special. Now, in real life, there was no 1959 Starfire Special. Starting in 1961, car manufacturer Oldsmobile offered a convertible called the Starfire. It was a luxury car with lots of space and a big engine. It retailed for $4,647 in 1961, making it Oldsmobile's most expensive car that year. The car manufacturer sold 1,500 of them in that first year alone. For those interested, that 1961 price would be worth $40,072 in 2020 dollars. With nostalgia for the 50s and 60s at this time in the 1980s, it could be that the memory of this car inspired Shaggy's bike. Although, it could also be based on the Schwinn Jaguar Mark IV, which was a deluxe luxury bicycle. In 1959, the Jaguar was halfway through its production run, which would end in 1965. Could it be that writer Tom Ruger combined an old Schwinn with an old Oldsmobile name and created magic? Or is it a coincidence that a deluxe bike and a luxury car got merged in the episode? Either way, the name Starfire just sounds cool. Number 6. The 1960s were a mixed-up time for America and pop culture. There were a lot of trends and fads. Music was rapidly changing to suit the taste of the generation that was coming out of the late 40s and early 50s, the baby boomers. Almost overnight, an older generation of singers were replaced by a new generation. Bands like The Kinks, Rolling Stones, and The Beatles were suddenly everywhere and took American youth by storm. While the band members were still kids, they were the trendsetters for those just slightly younger. They created a craze that brought dollar signs to the eyes of the record company executives. In 1964, Casey Kasem was still working to build his career. 
He went from hosting dance hops on local television to co-hosting the daily teen show Shebang with Dick Clark. As most know, by the time the 70s started, Kasem was well-established and had just started the two most iconic jobs he would ever have. In 1969, he started voicing Norville Shaggy Rogers, and in 1970, he co-created and hosted American Top 40. What most people don't know is that Kasem didn't just report the top records. At one point, he was part of it as an artist. Now, this was back in 1964, back at a time when the Top 40 was not really being celebrated. Kasem had a minor hit with a track called Letter from Elena. It was a spoken word piece released by Warner Music. Kasem had received a letter from a Beatles fan after a Fab Four concert. The letter detailed a chance meeting between Elena and her favorite Beatle, George Harrison. It's easy to imagine this track being a hit. To hear, secondhand, a meeting with the Beatles at the height of their fame was the dream of every fan. She excitedly wrote the letter to Kasem, who performed it to an instrumental version of And I Love Her. This may have been the forerunner to AT40's long-distance dedication. At any rate, it capitalized on the Beatles' fame and helped to make a star out of Casey Kasem. After these messages, we'll be right back. Buzzard and Goliath, each sold separately with two figures. Buzzard, convert. Ron, you fly cover. I'm heading upstairs, Nevada. Roger, Matt. Okay, Mayhem, this round's for you. Mask, where illusion is the ultimate weapon. Mask, Goliath, and Buzzard, each sold separately. New from Kenner. Hello, my name is Crispy. How do you do? Crispy critters, cereals, entirely new. It's indubitably delicious. Oh, here comes crispy critters, a good wholesome bunch. The low sugar cereal with lots of crunch. Yes, it's indubitably. 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 Delicious. Post crispy critter cereal is part of a balanced breakfast. Cha cha cha. The Loch Ness Monster. No. The Six Musketeers. No. <laughs> the McDonald's Chicken McNuggets Happy Meal with regular fries and soft drink. Ah, uh, how do you know? Just a lucky guess. Now everybody can act out stories when they buy a Berenstain Bears Happy Meal. They get one of four Berenstain Bears in a box that's a Bear Village building. You're not making that up, are you, Papa? No. The Berenstain Bears, a different one each week at McDonald's. And on with the countdown. Beep, beep. Number five. Music plays an important part in any series. It helps to set a mood or get a point across. For a pup named Scooby-Doo, the opening theme helps to establish a retro feel, like it was from the late 1950s. In the episodes, the songs help to keep the chases light and goofy. The maestro behind the music is none other than John Debney. After going to school to major in music, Debney scored a three-year job scoring the rides at various Disney parks. 
While he left the theme parks, he did provide music for several Disney projects. But in 1984, he landed on Saturday morning, scoring two episodes of the show Dragon Slayer. Since that time, Debney's career has been diverse and shows no sign of slowing down. With hundreds of projects to his credit, you've probably heard his work. And when I say he's diverse, I mean it. He scored the cartoon Tiny Toon Adventures, the TV series Sequest 2032, the American attempt at Doctor Who, Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, Hugh Jackman's The Greatest Showman, and, as of late, Seth MacFarlane's The Orville. When he wasn't composing music, he was conducting it. He's still active with Disney, having worked on the recent Jungle Book. By the way, Debney was playing guitar as early as the age of six. He's recalled his first concert being the 1964 Hollywood Bowl concert of The Beatles. It is likely Debney was put on Pup because of his position at Hanna-Barbera at that time. He mentored under Hanna-Barbera composer Hoyt Curtin and helped to keep the Hanna-Barbera sound alive. With all the work he did, he's almost as prolific as voice actor Frank Welker. Number 4 And speaking of Frank Welker, he didn't have the chance to reprise his role as Freddy on A Pup Named Scooby-Doo. I can't find if this is because Welker was so busy with other shows, or if the producers simply wanted a younger-sounding Fred. Let's take a quick look at what Frank Welker was doing in 1988 when A Pup Named Scooby-Doo went on the air. Let's see here. He, uh... Okay. Okay, let's do this. <gasps> Adventures of the Gummy Bears, The Real Ghostbusters, The Completely Mental Misadventures of Ed Grimley, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Muppet Babies, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, DuckTales, This Is America, Charlie Brown, The Smurfs, Garfield, His Nine Lives, Fantastic Max, Yogi and the Invasion of the Space Bears, CBS Story Break, The Land Before Time, Dino Riders, Scooby-Doo and the Reluctant Werewolf, Snort, Top Cat and the Beverly Hills Cat, Oliver and Company, David and the Magic Pearl, Kathy's Last Resort, The New Yogi Bear Show, Superman, Scooby-Doo and the Ghoul School, The Flintstone Kids, The Good, The Bad, and Huckleberry Hound, Caddyshack 2, Denver, The Last Dinosaur, My Neighbor Totoro, Pound Puppies and the Legend of Big Paw, Probe, The New Adventures of Pippi Longstockings, Rags to Riches, and The Bible, The Amazing Book. That's 34 projects. So, yeah, he might have been a little busy. Whatever the case, Welker still became a part of the show. In fact, he became several parts of the show in true Welker fashion. In the second season episode, Chickenstein Lives, Welker voiced three characters. He voiced the title character, Chickenstein, Casimir Codwaller, and Eddie Jones. The episode centered around Freddy's Uncle Eddie buying the tabloid paper The National Exaggerator. Not only does Uncle Eddie look a little like a grown-up Freddy, but he sure sounds a lot like him, too. Two episodes later, Welker returned in The Computer Walks Among Us. This time, he played two characters. He was Bruce Wormsley, a science nerd that tried to one-up Velma in the science fair. Because he didn't like coming in second, he was also the one who did it at the end of the episode. On the flip side of that, Welker also voiced the Dinkley 2000, a robot created by Velma. And also, the Dinkley 2000 was the first place winner at the science fair. So, even though Welker wasn't one of the Scooby characters, he was still part of the tapestry. By the way, there are two bits of trivia concerning the episode Chickenstein Lives. The title monster would make an appearance in a museum in the live-action movie Scooby-Doo 2 Monsters Unleashed. 
though that Chickenstein has been criticized as not resembling the animated version. Also, if you watch the show on the TV in Granny's basement, you can catch a glimpse of the Flintstone Kids. Not only was this another Hanna-Barbera show, but one where an older property was introduced in child form, just like a pup named Scooby-Doo. Number 3. Whenever there's a crime or spooky monster in Coolsville, Freddy Jones suspected one thing. Mole people. No wait, two things. Mole people and red herring. But time after time, Red proved his innocence and the Scooby-Doo detective agency would go on to reveal the real monster. At the start of Season 3, in the episode Night of the Boogie Biker, Fred was challenged to go 24 hours without blaming Red for anything. Sounds simple enough. Turns out that Red has an aunt by the name of Hedda Herring. When her motorcycle is stolen, she hires the kid detectives with the famous pooch to get it back. The missing motorcycle was a prize Hedda earned years ago when she raced the boogie biker through Devil's Canyon. Halfway through the canyon, the boogie biker disappeared and Hedda won the race. Now, all these years later, it seems like the boogie biker has come back to take the motorcycle. At the end, Daphne explains that Winnie Bago, Hedda's neighbor, is really the boogie biker. But she's not. When the monsters unmasked, it's red herring. Fred throws a fit and then later talks non-stop about how Red is connected to all the crimes in Coolsville. Red explains to the Scooby gang and his aunt that he didn't steal the motorcycle. He took it to get it cleaned and thoughtfully added a sidecar so Aunt Hedda had a place to put her groceries. So, for all the times Freddy suspected Red, he was wrong. And the one time Red really was the monster, Freddy was held back from suspecting him. While Freddy might have suspected Red of various things for the rest of the show, Herring was never again guilty. That we know of. Beep, beep. Number 2. In 2013, a pup named Scooby-Doo returned. Sort of. While it was called Scooby-Doo Adventures, the directed DVD episode was obviously based on Pup. The one-off show, The Mystery Map, made its premiere in July of 2013 at the San Diego Comic-Con. Two days later, it was available as a Walmart-exclusive download. And, finally, in February of 2014, it was available everywhere on DVD. The show featured puppets of the characters as they tackled the mystery of a found treasure map. The style was straight out of a pup named Scooby-Doo, and they didn't try to hide it. They celebrated it. They mentioned they were in Coolsville. The show starts in the treehouse, and Velma says Jinkies. It's a sure sign it was set in the pup universe. Wink! Unlike Pup, this show featured Frank Welker as Freddy Jones. But, like a pup named Scooby-Doo, it featured songs to complement the action. All three songs were cribbed from past Scooby-Doo productions. To date, this has been the only Scooby-Doo adventure to feature the gang as puppets. For me and my kids, watching this show was time well spent if you liked a pup named Scooby-Doo. It was as zany as you'd want from that show, and was just fun to watch all the puppet action. When you watch a puppet show, is it okay to say what you felt? And now, a very special announcement. They're doing push-ups in Peoria. They're jogging in L.A. 
They exercise in everything in lots of crazy ways. What take it from the chopper? Hey, the chopper, yeah, that's me. If you want to have great choppers, exercise your teeth. Exercise those choppers, really chew, chew, chew. Exercise those choppers on some good hard food. Your molars grind, your canines tear, incisors bite right through. So exercise those choppers on some good hard food. Pompanick, carrot sticks, crunchy fruits and nuts. Things you really have to chew will make your choppers tough. So take it from the chop, cause choppers know it's true. Exercise is great, but exercise your choppers too. Hey, chopper, how about running a few laps with us? Hey, later, man. I'm eating a celery stick. This is hard exercise. And now, beep, beep. number one. When Tom Ruger was creating a pup named Scooby-Doo, he knew he wanted to give it a good start. He had Don Messick as Scooby and Casey Kasem as Shaggy, the originators of those roles way back in 1969. There was just one more classic touch Ruger wanted for his version of the canine crime fighter. Ruger wanted William Hanna to direct the pilot episode. When he approached the co-founder of Hanna-Barbera Studios, Hanna said, no. Ruger was persistent and eventually Hanna relented. According to Ruger, Hanna directed quickly but gave the show the look that would continue for the rest of the run. William Hanna was the original director of Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? in 1969. Before a pup named Scooby-Doo, Hanna hadn't directed any of the Scooby incarnations since the 1972 series, The New Scooby-Doo Movies. Ruger brought that touch of classic Scooby-Doo to Pup and created something new for a whole generation. It just goes to show that tenacity can pay off. And there you have it, 10 things about a pup named Scooby-Doo. Join us next time when we take a look at 10 things about Camp Candy. Until next time, Thanks for tuning in. Thank you for joining us at the Saturday Morning Podcast 10 Things Series. If you'd like to drop us a line, please write to satmornpod at hotmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at satmornpod. Do you have any vintage Saturday morning memories? Email us your story and we could read it on the next episode.